Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, as we continue to work our way through the book of Matthew, we come today to the third of five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, just as a way to kind of help you kind of understand where we are and how Matthew is developing his Gospel and telling his account and and, and story, the life of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, just as way of reminder, in the first four chapters of Matthew, we learn of the beginning and the early part of Jesus' ministry through his temptation, his baptism, and coming up through just coming on the scene, so to speak, for his ministry. We turn then to the first major discourse of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And this is, you might remember or know, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have three chapters there where Jesus delivers this sermon, followed by chapters 8 and 9. You'll remember in chapters 8 and 9 were just a plethora of miracles and healings from the life of Christ that he did, which led into then the second major discourse. So out of the, the miracles and healings of chapters 8 and 9, we come into chapter 10, which is known as the missionary discourse, where Jesus sends out the apostles to uh, the surrounding towns, and then he does the same, and in that he teaches on what we can expect as those who would go out for the renown uh, renown of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. After that discourse, verses, or chapters 11 and 12, which we just recently were in, present us with all sorts of interactions between Jesus and the people in the surrounding towns of Galilee, but maybe more importantly, as we think about the overall shape of the gospel, we see here developing this increased intensity of his interaction with the Pharisees. So it's in chapters 11 and 12 that we see the, the, kinda, the, the opposition of the Pharisees arising, and we talked about how it will gradually increase throughout the remainder of the gospel. But it's chapters 11 and 12 where it begins, which then brings us then to chapter 13. In chapter 13, the third major discourse is coming on the hills of these interactions with the Pharisees. So you can just imagine the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the large crowd that had heard that. You can imagine all of the, the healings and the, the miracles that took place, the crowds that would follow, the news would spread of what Christ was doing, what he was capable of. And then you can imagine the people kind of getting excited. They, they see and they're asking questions. Could this be the one? Is he the Christ? But yet the leaders, they see their, their leaders, the, the Pharisees, opposing him, sowing seeds of discourse to, or discord to undermine his ministry calling him the one who does the work of Satan. And so you can imagine just the, the kind of the, the, the excitement, the curiosity that would arise that brings about what we read in the very first chapter, verse of 13, great crowds that would gather around him. Now the question that I would start us out with this morning is, if this was you and you had been teaching and carrying out your ministry, And great crowds began to surround you. Just great hordes of people came and started filling perhaps this place. They just 
fill this place and, and we were having to live stream and, and put people in other areas or even go outside. The numbers were so great. In that moment, what would you do? How would you respond? What would you teach? What would you say? How would you make the most of the opportunity? Would you fashion a, a really nice, succinct, uh, polished TED Talk? Would you put something forward that would be really clear, and really focused, and have lots of slides and catchy with, with things that would be uh, tweetable and easy to remember and things we could put on t-shirts? What would you teach? What would you do? What would you say? When we turn to Matthew 13, we see what Jesus did. Jesus begins teaching in parables. He responds to this great crowd by teaching on the kingdom, right? You remember the, the great pronouncement that he made in Matthew 4? Repent for what? The kingdom is at hand. It was the same thing that John had said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And now in Matthew 13, Jesus starts teaching focused on the kingdom. And he gives parables about the kingdom. And so our parable this morning, there's, there's seven parables in chapter 13 we'll look at as we go through the chapter. But this morning, we're taking a big chunk of, of the chapter, verses 1 through 23. And, and, and this passage explains people's response to the teachings they hear. Why do they respond the way they respond? And it really helps us answer two questions that we'll see this morning. Why do people Respond differently to the gospel would be the first question. Why is it that the same word, the same message is proclaimed, and yet people throughout this auditorium, people throughout the world would respond differently to it? Why is it that even the thief on the two thieves on the cross, why did they respond differently? What does that look like? What led to that? And the second question is why do some people seem to, who seem to be believers walk away from the faith? Why does that happen? Well, why is it that we would look and go, wow, I, I can't believe. They were, they, were, they, were, they were so excited about the Lord. They were just there at everything for a whole six months or a year, and now they're gone. What happened? How did that happen? So our passage today will help us answer those two questions. Let's read together beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. The word of the Lord tells us this. That same day... Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, we stop at this point, and just to, just to notice a few things. One, verse 1, when that great crowd gathers, Jesus 
sees that and in order to be more effective in that time a lot of times people if they're teaching there's a great crowd of people they might elevate themselves in some way or get back to where the acoustics might be better in this instance Jesus gets in a boat and and takes the boat a little bit off the shore so he can teach and and preach to the people they could hear better he could the crowd would receive that the crowd here it says great crowds gathered about him the crowd would have been surely filled with all sorts of people it would have been filled with those who uh, perhaps were, uh, had been healed by Christ. Some who had gathered and said, Man, he did this great work in my life or my family member's life or my friend's life, and, and I'm going to go and hear what he has to say. Perhaps it was ones that had seen the miracles of Christ. They had they'd seen, they heard, and so seeing that, they came about him and said, I want to hear more from him. I want to hear what he has to teach. Perhaps some of them were just kind of curious. They had heard the chatter. They had, they had heard people talking. They had heard about his confrontation with the Pharisees and, and the words, how he stood opposed to them and the, the agenda of the Pharisees trying to undermine his ministry. And so they were curious. What, what is it that he could be saying that would cause this? Maybe some of them just said, man, I, I want some of this. Like I want a share in the blessings, right? I, I've heard people talk about it. I, I, want, I want in on it. Like, give me some of that, right? But perhaps some of them had committed their lives to him. They had turned from their sin. They had repented, and they were following him because they understood, and they were watching, and they knew, and they perceived that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was at hand. It was there being ushered in right before their eyes. If you think about it, the crowd's probably pretty similar to our gatherings every Sunday, our gatherings in which many gathered in here are believers that love the Lord and, and, and sincerely worship Him in spirit and truth and exalt Him and are living for His purpose, His glory, seeking to advance the gospel just in everyday life and rhythms of life. The some have come because you're curious about it. You're curious about Christianity. You have questions about it or you know someone who, man, their, their family is great or their life is, is wonderful and I, I'm just curious about what that is. Maybe you want one in on it. Maybe you respect the, the morals and the moralistic teachings you, as you would perceive them of the Bible. Maybe you're just here because you feel bad and you're looking for a new answer, a new day. There's all sorts of reasons why we gather. And in this instance, as we gather, Jesus takes the opportunity to, to teach them and to speak to them in parables. And in verse 9, he makes a really important statement. He gives this parable. He gives this story. And after he states it, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. What does that mean? It's an invitation. It's an appeal to do more than just hear. Like, you could come in and afterwards say, hey, did you hear the sermon today? Yeah, 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 yeah. What was it about? I don't know. <laughs> right? Were you listening? Uh-huh. Can you tell me something, one takeaway from it? Uh, I don't know. You know? You ever get that? Parents? Absolutely. Right? It's real. It's not just kids, though. It's adults. Right? It's easy to just hear something and let it bounce off or just keep on moving. But when Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear, it's an invitation to consider what has been said. It's an invitation to, to think deeply upon what has been said. It's an invitation to, to mull it over, to internalize it. 
It's not enough just to come and just to hear a sermon preached and then just leave. The question when we come across this verse, this statement, this appeal from Christ is, do we understand what we've heard? Do we internalize the message? Do we apply it? Do we consider, what does this call me to respond? In what way am I called to respond? How might I respond to this? How might my life look different according to what God's Word says in Matthew 13? I I hope that's something you think through and consider every time you sit under the teaching of the Word. Is what would this look like for me to apply it to my life? What is the Word of God saying? What truths are there to, to behold? And out of those truths, how does it lead me to respond? How does it stir my affections? How does it, how does it touch my heart? How does it compel my mind? And out of that then, how does it work out into my life? What is it calling me to do? To think? To conform to? It's so easy to hear a sermon every week and never apply it. It's so easy to hear the Word and never really consider its meaning. It's so easy to just hear and read through this parable, yet ignore and just be blind to the implications that it has in our lives. It's easy to hear the Gospel to never really think upon it, to know it, and yet not respond to it. He who has ears, let him hear, Christ says. Let him mull over it and consider it and think deeply upon it. May we hear and understand and apply the teachings of our Lord. We pick up in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? It's a logical question, isn't it? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says. You will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull. And their ears And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not hear it. The the disciples ask a a question that I think really makes sense. This big crowd has gathered Jesus and and you stand up and, and this is when you just nail it. I mean, you drive it home really clear with four simple words that are really memorable that they can take and go, oh, I get it. 
You told him a story. You told him a parable. Why? Why did you do that? Why do you use parables? Jesus gives them an answer. The parable, you may or may not know this, parables are, are an important part of Jesus' ministry. His, his most common teaching style or method of teaching was, was to use parables. And they, they've been described in various ways over the years. One, one of the most probably common ways that, that you've probably heard a parable described is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Parables over the, the history of the church, if there's been different opinions and schools of thought on how do you interpret parables. For, for many, many years, centuries, that it was viewed as that they're just allegory, that we, we look for the, the symbolic meaning to it. What is this equivalent to and what does this look like? But thanks be to God that there are those who ra- God raised up in the church to understand that parables are more than just allegory. We don't just explain them away or seek these meanings into them. Here we, we have Jesus explain the the meaning to us in verses 18 to 23. But we would understand now and we would see that the parables, they do indeed have a meaning. There is a point that Jesus uses to illustrate with a parable. Jesus uses a, a parable, a story in various lengths and various forms. He uses them to, to, to kind of tap the imagination, experience of man so we might understand the things of God. One, one commentator wrote this. He said, parables were designed to make one stabbing truth flash out at a man the moment he hears it. There's a point to parables. We need to consider that this morning and then in the days ahead as we look at parables. What is the point? What is being taught here by Christ? Why is he employing this method in this moment? But ultimately, in verse 11, I think Jesus' answer is quite shocking why he uses parables. Look what he says in verse 11. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. What we have here is another kind of sneak peek into the window of divine sovereignty. We have this kind of glimpse into the reality that God reveals himself to man. He makes himself known to man. Do you remember we saw the same thing in Matthew eleven twenty five to 27? Remember what Jesus said there? He said at the, that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the, the Son chooses to reveal him. We see here in Matthew 11, we see again in Matthew 13 that there is this element of God revealing to man what has been concealed. Praise the Lord that he does indeed reveal himself. But we need to understand that God sovereignly and graciously reveals himself to us, to man, according to his gracious will. Divine sovereignty. But I would point out this does not remove the question that sometimes comes up then is, well, does that mean that that man's not responsible? No, it doesn't remove man's responsibility. The the parable is talking about how do we hear but not understand it. It looks at man's heart. 
If you just notice there, 13, 11, and 12 focus on God's revealing, right? It is given to know. You, you have been given this to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It has been made known to you. It has been revealed to you. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given than he who has in abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's talking about God's gracious work of making himself known, of revealing spiritual truth to man. But yet, when you look there in verses 13 to 15, it's focused on the heart of man. That man still has a responsibility. His heart has grown dull so that he can barely hear. He's closed his eyes so that he no longer sees or hears. It's the condition of man, man's heart, that is preventing him from understanding and knowing and responding to the gospel so that man is left in dire need of God to burst forth light into darkness, to bring life to what is dead, to reveal himself to man. God is graciously making himself known to man. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 119.18 said, Open my eyes, Lord. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Brothers and sisters, believers, we come to this passage. This should resonate within us and create in us a great depth of thanksgiving that we know and we understand that we can look to God's Word and, and we understand the Spirit illumine, illumines it and makes it known to us, reveals it, that we might understand it and perceive it. We boast not in ourselves and our ability to understand and know. We boast in Christ and it should just make us thankful for what He has done in our lives. Praise be to God for that. Now verse 12 is an interesting verse, isn't it? Verse 12 is interesting. He, he says, the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What is that talking about? Well, it's not talking about physical possessions. How do we know that? Because the context. <laughs> Remember? We, we want to study and be aware of context, right? He's not saying, hey, listen, the, the rich, I'm just going to give more to the rich, I'm heaping on, man. He, he who has, you're just going to get more and more and more. But if you're poor and, and you don't have a lot, even what you have is going to be taken away, buddy. Yep. How does that make you feel? That's not what he's saying. No. In the context, he's talking about the, the teaching of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the gospel, the truth. And so here he says, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? He's talking about spiritual truth and, and the, the one who possesses a measure of truth. And so the first one is the, the one who understands and applies the truth that he has, that he's been given. To him, more will be given. He will, he will grow. He will gain more knowledge and understanding of who God is and his calling on his life. The truth that you've been given, that you've been entrusted with, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? To so he who has been given, more will be given. But yet, the second, second part of that verse, the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The one who, who squanders the little truth that he has, he will see it vanish. He will lose it. It's the one who comes and sits in week in and week out in, in Sunday school, and here's that lesson taught over and over and over again. The one who hears the gospel, the truth of the word, and 
does nothing with it, squanders it. Don't waste what you've been given. He who has an ear, let him hear. Don't waste what is given unto you. Jesus goes on to explain this further, quoting Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Isaiah 6, you might remember, is the calling of Isaiah where, where we see him behold God in his holiness and God sends him out. And he sends him out saying, you know what, people are going to hear, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to understand. They've got blinded eyes and deaf ears because of hardened hearts. And so here Jesus quotes this and he says, listen, in their case, the people who gather and they hear this teaching, but yet they don't respond to it. They're just fulfilling what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6. It's exactly what's going on. They, they hear, yet they do not understand. And what is the root cause for that? Look, look at your text there. What's the root cause? Start in verse 14, uh, where he starts to quote, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? For the people's heart has grown dull. Their heart's grown dull. Their hearts are, are dull and, and callous. They, 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 their heart is so dull that they, they hear and they don't understand it. They, they, they see and they don't perceive it. It doesn't make sense. They don't grasp it. And so the result then is that with their ears, they can barely even hear anymore. Their eyes, they, they close them. He says, lest... It's a conjunction expressing a, a, a negative purpose here. Lest they should see their eyes. It, it, you might say, in order that not, they should see. And hear, their ear, hear with their ears. Understand with their heart. Essentially, it's saying that they have so closed their eyes and so shut off their ears because of their callousness of heart that they are not going to listen. They're not going to hear. They're not going to perceive. The truth that we learn is that callous hearts lead to deaf ears and blind eyes. It was a condition of those who heard Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And it greatly explained why they responded the way they responded. It's the condition of men and women in our day that greatly shows and reveals why people respond as they do or do not because of the condition of their heart. The greatest need then is what? Is for God to do a great work in the hearts of men and women to reveal and make himself known to bring life to dead hearts. Listen, I'm believing, friends, the reality is that you need God to do a work in your heart. You need to do exactly what Paul wrote of in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He said, for God who said, let, sh let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was the heart cry, the theme of our brother John Moore, wasn't it, Wanda? He may have forgotten a lot of things in his day, that brother knew one thing to the end. And he would tell you time and time again that what man needs is for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ to be shined upon us. That we might understand and perceive 
That's our prayer for you, unbeliever. That God would do a great work in your heart to open your eyes to behold the gospel, to behold Christ and trust in Him. The last thing he says before he explains the parable there is what we meditated on. These two verses is what we built the worshiping song around this week. The fact that, that he says, blessed are your eyes for they see, your ears for they hear. As there were many prophets and righteous people who longed to see what you hear and did not see it, longed long to see what you see and did not see it, and longed to hear what you hear and they, they didn't hear it. Blessed are you. Don't forget the blessing of what you see and behold, believer. Don't think little upon that. The saints of old long to see it. They long to behold it. It's not that beautiful passage that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 10-12 says. I love how Peter talks about in, in, up leading to that, verses 3-9, through 90, he talks about the gospel and God's great mercy in saving us. And then in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories that was revealed to them. They were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even the angels long to look. Oh, how blessed we are. How blessed we are to know the glorious truths of the gospel message of what Christ did that we might be saved. Continue on in verse 18. Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. He pulls them aside. He sits down with them. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution rises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soul, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty, in another, thirty. Jesus had sat down with his disciples. He teaches this to them privately. And this serves as the application, the, the end of our text and sermon today that we need to consider and think about to determine which one of these individuals, which one of these situations, which one of these soils would most characterize us? Which one do you look and go, you know what, if I'm really honest, that's me. So we understand that the parable, the sower is speaking of the preacher or the evangelist, one who sows the seed of the message of the kingdom, the gospel, speaking the truth of God. He declares the word and the soil in the parable is describing the hearts of men, the hearts of those who hear the word of the kingdom. And so we look and we understand the sower and the soil, and, and Jesus describes four types of people in this parable. 
four types of people. And as we go through this to end, I want you to consider, what do I look like? Which one is this for me? Where am I? The first one is in verse 19. It's the, the person with a hard heart. Is the one who hears the word but not, does not understand. He gives it little consideration. He doesn't really think about it. doesn't really give it serious thought. He comes in and hears a sermon, hears the word read, hears it proclaimed, and then just leaves without really thinking about it. He comes in contact with this great treasure, but he does not even realize the treasure he comes in contact with. Perhaps you're the one that's been hardened by busyness or by pride or by the messages of culture. You've heard them so long that it's just kind of hardened your heart. Or maybe you've been hardened with bitterness towards Christianity because of something that happened in the past. Your, your heart is just hardened towards it. Perhaps you have a hardened heart because you, you've bought into this idea that I'll do it later. I've got all the time in the world. It doesn't matter. I have to do it and deal with it today. I, I've, I've got tomorrow. It's the hardened heart. It's the heart like, like Pharaoh whose heart was so hardened that even in the face of great miracles and works of God right in front of him, his heart remained hardened or perhaps it'd be helpful for you to understand and perceive what paul says in ephesians 4 17 and 18 where he describes the gentiles as those who walk in the futility of their minds he says they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart it's the hardness of heart it makes them darkened in their understanding. They do not understand. They might hear the message of the cross. They might hear the gospel. They might hear of Christ, but they're hardened towards him. Why? Because they're darkened in their understanding. This individual, Jesus said, is the one that Satan comes in and just steals away the word quickly. He comes in and snatches it away, distracts the person's mind, lures away his affections, puts new desires in front of him. If something might be said that would compel you, but your heart is hardened and very easily distracted, lured away. The hardened heart. Would that characterize you? Would you say, yeah, that's me. Week in and week out, that's me. The second person is in verse 20 and 21. It's the, the person with a shallow heart. A shallow heart. It's the, the seed sown on rocky ground that shoots up really quickly, but yet it has no root. In, in, in the land or around there where, when Jesus was teaching, it was very common that there would be a layer of stone underneath the, the ground. And so something would, would sprout up really quick, but the, the heat and the dryness would quickly destroy it because it had no root system. So it was a, a, very, it was a picture that made sense. It, it, you could see it around you. This would be the person who, who perhaps has a, a shallow emotional response to Jesus. They hear it and it's, Easy, they kind of get kind of torqued up and amped up for it. But the gospel and truth really never actually penetrates into their heart. It just resides in, in this shallow emotional response. So when the trials of life come upon them, when life gets real and their faith gets tested, then their faith evaporates with their feelings. All of a sudden, maybe it's not fun anymore. Maybe I don't want to follow anymore. Listen, feelings are a good gift from the Lord. Feelings are not evil. They're not bad. God made us as individuals and creatures who have feelings. But feelings should not guide us. Feelings should not be what produces or, or, or proves our faith. 
feelings in Scripture we see here, they flow out of what God has done, truths of who God is. It's our response to Him. When it's just a feeling, it's easy for it to be fleeting. Feelings easily leave when persecution and trials come. And we've seen this before, right? Maybe some of you are here who would say, that's me. The one who got excited about something. The one who got really emotional about something for a while. But yet, when something really hard happened at work or something really tough happened at school and it demanded you take a stand for the Word, that you would stand bold in the face of opposition because of the Word of God, that you said, nope, done. I'm not going to keep following. As soon as difficulty arises, I just, I'm not there anymore. Passionate faith is gone. I would say COVID did that to a lot. Reveals some shallowness of heart. Are you that person? Is that you? You say that the soul of my heart is just shallow and respond emotionally to things, but it really doesn't last. I'm up and down. I'm all over the map. Depends on what week you catch me on. The third person is the person with the divided heart. It's the, the seed that falls in the soil that is choked out by thorns. There's thorns and thistles all around. It's like the person that would reside in the very back portion of my garden. Are right? these incredible uh, black and red raspberry bushes that are really, really nice raspberry bushes, or they were at one time, but because I didn't tend them, the, the thorns and the weeds have grown up all around, and they choked them out to where last year, I don't think we got one raspberry off of them. Destroyed them. And here Jesus says this is the one with a divided heart, the thorns, the, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches chokes them out. It's the person with divided loyalties whose heart says, well, yeah, I, I want Jesus, but I really want all this stuff too. Like, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus and, and, and I'll go along with him as long as it doesn't mean that I have to give up my stuff. So it's the one with the heart that is so consumed with worldly desires that those worldly desires choke out any response and true following of Christ. You'll be the one who claims to serve and follow Jesus, yet outside of the 10.30 hour on a Sunday morning, your life is consumed with acquiring more and accomplishing more stuff and things, recognition, is consumed with worldliness except for this moment of the week. It's the divided heart. What happens to this person? It's choked out. They don't persevere. The deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world choke them out. It's like Demas who had once served with Paul but he writes in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, for, he's writing to Timothy, he says, you know what, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He, he's in love with the world. 
He's, he's served alongside of Paul for a while, but his love for the world caused him to desert Paul. That's what Jesus taught about in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's not demonizing money. But if it's an idol, and if it's God, money, if it's God, cares of the world, God, riches, whatever it is, this doesn't work. God alone is worthy of worship and exalting and glory in our lives. We follow Christ, rich or poor. We follow Him. The cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, can choke you out. Would that describe you? Is that your heart? Then the fourth person described there in verse 23 is the person with a ready heart, the person with a fruitful heart. The, the, it's a seed sown on good soil that, that grows and bears much fruit. It's the true believer, the one who hears the gospel, who understands it, accepts it, and follows Christ. The one whose heart has truly been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. When he or she hears the word, it does not bounce off, but it sinks in deeply. The word that does not just momentarily shoot up only to shrivel under adversity. No, the the gospel truth, the, the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is the one who this heart treasures above all else. It's not the heart that goes, well, I, I, I like Jesus, but I like this stuff. I love Jesus, but I love this stuff. No, it is the heart that says, I love Christ. Not in it for the benefits. I treasure Christ. I just treasure him. I love him. And because of that, I'm just going to walk in obedience. It's the fruit-bearing heart. Listen, you need to understand. You need to know and be reminded this morning that fruit-bearing is a sure sign of conversion. Fruit-bearing is a sure sign of conversion. In in Scripture, we see that, that the one who is truly a follower of God is going to bear fruit. This is what Jeremiah taught. You can even go back into Psalm 1, that the righteous bears fruit. And then Jeremiah in 17, 7, 8, he, he describes the one who loves the Lord. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, is not anxious in the year of drought. Why? Because it does not cease to bear fruit. Why? Because it's rooted in Christ. He trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Is your trust the Lord? So what Jesus talked about in John 15. John 15, Jesus talks about the fact that if you abide in Christ, if you are truly his, you will bear fruit. You'll bear fruit. There will be evidence. In verse 5 of John 15, he says, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Down into verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And then in verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and do what? You should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. God's people are fruit-bearing people. The fourth individual is the believer. 
The commentator James Montgomery Boyce said this. I love how he articulates. He says, The only sure evidence of a genuine reception of the Word of God in a person's life is spiritual fruit. Although we are not saved by our good works, the total absence of them indicates that we have never been truly saved. You need to consider that. You need to consider Matthew 13, 23. You need to consider the whole testimony of Scripture that true conversion results in fruitfulness. Now, it's not the amount of fruit. It's the presence of fruit. You see that in verse 23? He indeed bears fruit and yields, and in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. I mean, it may be a hundredfold from this brother. It may be sixty from that sister. It may be thirty from that brother. But there's fruit. There's fruit. There's evidence of salvation. If, if you step back and take an honest look at your life, and you see no spiritual fruit. There's nothing there outside of the fact that you come and you attend church on a given Sunday morning. The testimony of Scripture, and we could go into tons and tons of Scripture, would be you need to examine. You need to examine your heart. Are you a believer? Are you following Christ? Have you been converted? Or are you just religious? Are you just going through motions? The gospel call is repent. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God who was sent into this world to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death that we might be saved. And His power was displayed in the fact that He did not stay dead but He rose from the grave victorious. And the Word of God promises that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you trusted Christ? Is there evidence? Or is your heart hardened? Are you just banking on these shallow emotional experiences? Is Jesus just one other thing that you're trying to add in to all these other competing thorns and thistles of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches? I would appeal to you to trust Christ today. See, this parable answers those two questions. Why do people respond differently to the gospel? The condition of their heart. The condition of their heart. Why do some people seem to be believers and walk away from the faith? 
They weren't genuine believers. But John wrote in 1 John 2.19, they departed from us because they never were among us. Where are you? This first kingdom parable should cause us to examine our hearts. Which one are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, O God, again for your word. We thank you that, that, God, you have made yourself known to us. That, God, you reveal the secrets of the kingdom. You have revealed the gospel. And, God, I pray for friends in here, God, who have never trusted you. Maybe they are caught up in the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. Perhaps they just have hardened hearts due to the bitterness or past experience or, or busyness or they're just attracted to so many things of the world. Or maybe they just keep banking on these emotional highs and ebbs and flows or whatever it may be. But God, they've never trusted you. God, I pray for them. I pray that you would do a great work, that you would shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ upon their hearts, that you would bring life to them, Lord. God, save them, we pray. Save them, God, that they would respond in faith and trust and repentance to you, Lord. God, I pray that we would worship you that, Lord, as believers, we would find great assurance in the fact that, God, you hold us fast, in the fact that, God, you save us, you redeem us, we are yours, that you've made yourself known to us. And so, God, I pray that we as believers today, we would grow in you, Lord, that we would bear much fruit as a result of your work of grace in our lives. And God, let us zealously run after that. Let us zealously put our hands and feet to, to work for your glory. That God, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that, that we work hard for the glory of your renown, for the exaltation of the name of Christ. But it's not just us. It's the work of Christ in us that drives us and empowers us to do it. So God, use us, we pray, to bear much fruit for your glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.